Welcome to BTC Radio. I'm Kevin Mitchell, founder of the Business Travel Coalition and your host. Our guest today is Bill Flynn, president and CEO of Atlas Air Worldwide Holdings. Bill is one of the most respected leaders in the global air freight industry. Today, we will discuss the ways in which U.S. Open Skies policy has impacted the air freight industry business model. It's a true honor to have him on the show. Welcome, Bill. Thank you, Kevin. Delighted to be here. Well, let's get right to it. For those who are listening, who are who are more familiar with the commercial side of the industry, can you tell us some of the the basics of of the air freight industry? Sure, I'd be happy to, Kevin. But let's just start with uh, aviation more generally. And I think, as your listeners know, aviation is really at the center of our modern global economy. Air transportation drives economic and social progress. It connects people and countries and their cultures. From the freight and cargo point of view, it certainly provides access to global markets, along with generating the trade and tourism that comes, uh, that comes along with it. And in, if you think about it and step back, it also forges very important links between uh, developed and, and developing countries. It's estimated that the industry right now supports about 63 million jobs uh, globally, with 9 million of those jobs with, uh, directly in airlines, uh, the airports, and the air navigation services. And from an economic impact, it's estimated that aviation is uh, contributing something about uh, in the order of $2.7 trillion a year with direct and and through indirect impacts. And so part of that is indeed air freight, uh, equally a vital uh, component of global trade. And in 2016, the airlines transported nearly 54 million metric tons of goods that were valued at approximately $5.5 trillion dollars. And uh, an interesting statistic, I think, for for the listeners, when we think about air freight, global air freight, in terms of the weight that it transports, it represents only about 1% of the weight of global trade by volume, but it represents about 35% of the value of the goods that move in in, uh, in, in world trade. So you can kind of get an estimate, uh, think about the type of cargo uh, that's flying on our planes and flying on planes um, and globally. And so the revenues in the airline cargo industry right now total about $50 billion annually, or, or roughly about 10% of airline passenger revenues. And right now we're seeing uh, air freight tonnage at record levels, and they uh, continued um, uh, to, to grow. Uh, Boeing ex- publishes their own analysis of world, uh, world air cargo, and they're, they're estimating that uh, the market's going to grow about 4% a year over the next 20 years, which suggests that the total amount of activity would double over that time frame, with Asia, markets that are connected with Asia leading that growth. Very interesting. What, what impact, I mean, this is not anything new. It's probably 25 years old at this point, but what impact on your industry did this shift to just-in-time manufacturing have and did your industry enable it or did it just happen you know by sort of by itself i think it's really uh just-in-time manufacturing really is 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 a very important question kevin and i think uh it's probably a virtuous circle uh modern air freight uh connecting markets between asia and north america i think started uh as higher value products were being assembled in asia early telephones, consumer electronics, um, uh, computers, laptops, things of that nature. As new products were, were released, they moved, they moved air freight, and that was probably where we saw the, the biggest growth in air freight demand, and, and starting in the early 90s, as, as you suggest. But if we look at what moves air freight today, electronics and consumer goods are probably about 20% of total world demand. But we've seen other growth now in, in, in uh, fresh fruits and vegetables and perishables. So 
for 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 us here in the United States when we're buying cherries and, and blueberries and, and and asparagus in uh, December, January, and February, those are coming to our markets typically from uh, from South America via air freight, given the perishability of that. And so so the global supply chain for a wide range of products substantially depends on air freight. So you bring to mind, you know, you mentioned virtuous circle or cycle. You have the internet that allows, you know, U.S. businesses, small, medium, uh, especially uh, sized businesses, to get their their message out about their products and services, um, and in particular products in your case. So the internet is sort of their marketing arm, and, and you guys deliver their products to new markets, correct? No, that's absolutely right. In fact, um, we're estimating that something uh, in the order of 300,000 U.S. businesses depend on U.S. air cargo carriers and operations to sell and to compete in the global market. And and about 98% of those businesses are defined as small to medium. So whether it's Atlas and the customers, our customers that use Atlas to to drive their services or or FedEx or or UPS or or DHL, our, our largest customer, we're able through the inter- internet to connect to these small and medium-sized businesses and really enable them to reach customers virtually anywhere in the globe. So it's safe to say the internet has been a really important influence on on your business model. Absolutely on our business model, and 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 you know I think we're really at the early stages of that. Yeah. Okay. You know if you think about e-commerce, e-commerce uh, kind of penetration in in the U.S., it's about eight percent of retail. And 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 uh, a lot more to go. And even in that eight uh, percent, about half of that's probably uh, you know streaming uh, streaming media. So in terms of physical goods, there's a lot of upside growth. And when, one other thing I'd like to just talk about in the context of freight and cargo and express operations, e-commerce. There, there's an important difference that that your listeners may not uh, may not be aware of in the passenger business. When an airline takes a passenger from San Francisco to to Hong Kong. You would reasonably expect the passenger to, that same passenger to take the return flight from Hong Kong uh, back to the United States on the on, on the origin carrier, and that that's just generally true for for all passenger businesses. But for freight, it's quite different. Freight and cargo flows, because of the nature of global supply chains, uh, tends to move directionally in its broadest sense. It seems to move east to, to west across the globe, and it's not balanced. So there's not an equal amount of air freight moving in both directions. It tends to be seasonal with highest demand in the fourth quarter of the year and lowest demand in the first. And so as we think about uh, constructing the networks to serve those markets, customers large and small, to drive and uh, empower the global supply chain, you know, we're, we're really coming right to open skies, which has been now the first agreements a bit of around 25 years old now. Without that kind of open skies construct, um, we really wouldn't be able to do, to implement and deploy the kinds of net, networks that not only in, in, enable global trade in the largest sense, but we'll come right back to the 300,000 U.S. exporters, and, and which I said the vast majority are small and medium companies. They really wouldn't have access to many of those markets if they couldn't rely on our physical networks. And our physical networks, to a, to a large extent, exist because we have open skies. Well, let's let's go there for a minute. What the, the U.S. Open Skies policy and its adoption around the world must must have had, a, as you're alluding to, a pretty significant influence on your, your industry's um, model. If, if that's correct, 
what have been the benefits, not just to to you, but to to uh, your customers? Well, I think it comes right back to the, the discussion we've been having about kind of the nature of freight flows and how that those are different from the passenger uh, operations, where passengers, you know, go take a trip and, and and usually come back to the same to the same point. And as I as I said a moment ago, that's that's not the case in in the ways that freight flows. And so our networks often tend to be around the world networks. And so, for example, under Open Skies agreements, we are able to access markets that we would not otherwise be able to access. And, and so, for example, we could have a flight, any airline could have a flight that would go from Atlanta to, to Frankfurt. And in around the world network, you, you, the carrier will want to continue from Frankfurt to Dubai and then on to Hong Kong and then back to the United States. The freedoms, as they're called under open skies, that we have access to, certainly we have the right to carry cargo from the United States to Frankfurt. But open skies allows us once we discharge, unload uh, some of that traffic, open skies allow us to pick up cargo that originates in Germany and carry that to Dubai and carry some of that cargo through to Hong Kong, for example. Without open skies, we wouldn't be able to participate in those flows. And without being able to participate in those global flows moving along that east to west network, we wouldn't be able to to economically deploy, economically put in place the aircraft and all the services and network that supports that to provide low-cost, very efficient, very effective transportation to, to U.S. exporters and to our other customers. So it's, it's, criti- it's critical to global air freight and the role that we play in the global economy. Well, let's talk about jobs for a minute because it's been said, and I've been at, to uh, industry conferences where it, it's been stated that all cargo airlines are huge you know, job promoters, not just on the aircraft, but in the promotion of American exports of what you term, you know, high value products. Is that, is that true? Is it, is it an overstatement or is it just a a fact of your business? No, I think it's, I think you're right on point. So if we think about the three largest uh, uh, operators in the uh, air cargo industry, uh, FedEx, UPS, and Atlas, collectively, we employ uh, nearly 90,000 employees. And collectively, our aircraft fleet adds up to about 1,000 aircraft. So those are just 90,000, excuse me, 900,000 employees. 900,000 employees um, uh, among the three carriers. And those are just direct employees. So if we think through to the, you know, the secondary and, and, and tertiary effects of perhaps creating three, four, or five more times those jobs as a result of economic impact, the number is really significant. A thousand planes, uh, and the vast majority of those are Boeing aircraft, I, uh, and would expect that a large percentage of the engines are either Pratt-Whitney or, 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 or General Electric, and you begin to see the kind of multiplier effects that our industry has just in the U.S. economy alone not considering the uh, the impact we have by being able to provide the types of transportation that we do at the cost that we are able to 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 offer to our customers and then reach out across the market overall. Uh, Atlas Air, for example, last year we flew in and out of 120 countries, 425 different airports, serving our customers and and our customers' customers as a result. And you'd find very similar perspective uh, with you know uh, certainly FedEx and UPS. What was the thousand fleet number? Was that that is the the combined number of aircraft in the uh, Atlas, FedEx, and UPS fleet? I see. Okay, um, Bill, there's this thing called an ACMI, 
business model that your company and, and other carriers use, what is it and, and how does it help our country export our services? So ACMI, the, the, the letters simply stand for Aircraft Crew Maintenance and Insurance, and that is our core business model in terms of the flying that we do. That's about 75% of our activity. And what it means is we take our fleet of aircraft, we crew uh, the aircraft, maintain the aircraft, and operate them on behalf of our customers. And our customers are typically uh, an express company like DHL, our largest customer, uh, and we also provide flying for FedEx and, and UPS, or an airline, uh, someone such as Qantas, who want to have freighter operations whether it's core or supplemental, and then turn to us to provide the aircraft, the crew, the network operations and maintaining those aircraft. And we fly networks that they, uh, that they specify, that they indicate um, to us. So it's an outsourcing model where the customer is electing to outsource these uh, airport-to-airport operations to us, um, our aircraft, our crew, for example, uh, rather than provide the services or do the services for themselves. And the majority of our flying, in fact, is for, our, is for non-U.S. companies. And so we are, all the flying we do for them is indeed uh, considered an export of services, U.S. services, uh, to our customers who are non-U.S. companies buying these services from us. So it's job creating uh, in, in terms of uh, U.S. employment, our, our pilots and our, all of our uh, operations and network operations, and then job creating in, in the context of the aircraft that, that we're buying and the engines and all the support that goes along with it. Bill, you, you had mentioned um, the ability to stop in Frankfurt and pick up cargo and continue on to Dubai and then on to Japan. The, the same is true, obviously, in the air passenger part of the business. And for example, Emirates just announced and launched service from Athens, Dubai to Ap- Athens to uh, the United States. But the major network carriers, commercial airlines in the United States have a problem with that. And they're appealing to the Trump administration to stop it or slow it down or otherwise rule it out. Doesn't that pose a risk? If, if you try to do it on the commercial side, is, isn't there a risk to the cargo side of that kind of uh, strategy? So Open Skies benefits uh, all carriers. All U.S. carriers take advantage of Open Skies in one form or, or, or fashion or another. And if we go back and look at the original legislation when Open Skies was uh, and regulation when Open Skies was first considered, it certainly did recognize the benefits to the airlines that would come to them, accrue to us through network efficiencies and, and operations. But it also underscored the benefits that Open Skies would bring to communities to increase the level of service and access that communities have to uh, to global markets in terms of passenger uh, passengers. Importantly, in terms of tourism and 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 as well as uh, as well as trade. So Open Skies is, has always been viewed, I think, more holistically. It benefits the airline industry, absolutely, but it but benefits the communities that are served, new communities or new services to, to, to communities that didn't exist before, trade and tourism. And so it's, it's always been viewed, I think, in a much broader context. I think the discussion that's going on now that's specifically focused on the, uh, on the three Gulf carriers, Emirates, Etihad, and, and Qatar, from my perspective, is is misplaced. If the U.S., for example, were attempt would attempt to unilaterally renege on an open sky agreement, I think that would have a chilling effect across all open skies agreements that exist with 120 countries today. If we 
were, if the administration were to proceed and, and want to open up again unilaterally that negotiation, it could encourage other countries to kind of rethink uh, their commitment to open skies. Open skies works because companies, uh, countries, excuse me, uh, honor their commitments. And they, and if it were perceived that the U.S. were opening or or wanting to open up the negotiations with uh, with the Emirates and with Qatar. It could encourage other countries that want to support their domestic airlines to do the same. And so there's no guarantee once, once negotiations are opened or attempted to be opened, what the outcome is going to be. Uh, I, I've heard a discussion that uh, perhaps these, uh, these discussions could be limited to just uh, the passenger side of open skies and somehow, somehow uh, the, cargo, the cargo operations would be otherwise protected or, or isolated. I don't think that could be guaranteed. I, I, who knows what the uh, what the counterparty's uh, perspective is going to be? You know, our view on open skies is is, is really quite simple. It, open skies have been in effect now for 25 years. There are real, measurable, tangible benefits for the, for the carriers, for the passengers that are served, for trade and and and, and tourism. If they uh, if there's a concern, if the carriers have a concern uh, about uh, the Gulf carriers and that and their operations, there are other ways to address their concerns um, that exist today, as opposed to a unilateral um, attempt to open up the agreement that's been uh, a longstanding. Well, very well stated. Let's talk about the impact of this, what you term a discussion that I would term more like an attack on open skies policy. What risk to U.S. military readiness does it pose? So, you know, over the last couple of minutes, we've been talking about how open skies allow uh, carriers such as Atlas and, and, and FedEx, for example, to deploy global networks that, that have a far reach. And we've talked about the 120 countries or so that, that we serve. And you can, you can think of the reach, for example, that, that FedEx would have. We are both, and there are Certainly other carriers are well as well who are members of the Civil Reserve Air Fleet, the CRAF, C-R-A-F. And, and the Civil Reserve Air Fleet is, uh, has been in place for many years. Actually, it kind of came into being after the Berlin airlift when, when the Department of Defense realized that civilian operations, civilian aircraft operations, would be key and ultimately are key to our, our country's ability to deploy uh, forces, to respond to uh, disasters, and to provide humanitarian uh, assistance. And so, for example, uh, since 1991, Craft carriers have carried about 40% of the cargo that uh, that DoD has uh, shipped, uh, sh- excuse me, shipped around the world, certainly to Afghanistan and Iraq, but elsewhere, as I, as I mentioned, in the context of um, disaster uh, relief and humanitarian assistance. And about 90% of the troops move on on commercial aircraft, move on on members of the craft. In that context, we're committing to serve the military, to provide our aircraft and our crew and and all of our operations. But the military is is also depending on the networks that we have, the existing networks and operations that we have, as they think about moving people and and, and material through their supply chain. Absent open skies, absent the the fifth and seventh freedoms, absent the kind of networks that I described, you know, that would potentially uh, limit or constrict you know the the military's ability to take advantage of those networks, to take advantage of the services that we could provide them when needed. Bill, quickly, could you just describe in a sentence or two what a seventh freedom right is? Yes. So a fifth freedom right, for example, is we would fly from here to Frankfurt, U.S. to Frankfurt, Frankfurt to London, carry cargo between uh, Frankfurt and London, and then London back to the U.S. So it's a fifth freedom. We start in the U.S., 
We go to a point somewhere outside the U.S., can pick up cargo, carry it to another point and come home. The seventh freedom uh, is the ability to pick up cargo between two foreign points and not have any connection uh, or round trip to the United States. And so the seventh freedom actually gives us much more flexibility to participate in broader global markets without having to fly back to the U.S. Uh, and complete a full circle. It's a very valuable uh, a right to have, and, and, and the word freedoms uh, just comes from the uh, original international aviation agreements back from the 1930s. So a seventh freedom, hypothetically, you could pick a, a well-positioned city in South America and create a hub there and just have a base of operations throughout South America. Exactly. And you, could exactly. Feed it, you could feed that base, of course, from the U.S. and elsewhere around the world. But predominantly, that base would be focused on serving South America. That's an That's example, correct. correct? Yeah. Okay. That's a very good example. Okay. If you were advising the Trump administration and what to do about this debacle, this kerfuffle, probably is a better word, between the U.S. three major carriers and the Gulf carriers, what would you advise them? My advice would be not to not to unilaterally attempt to open up the uh, the open skies agreement that we have with uh, the United Arab Emirates and and with Qatar. Uh, there's already an existing remedy uh, available to to the legacy carriers. And in 1974, Congress enacted the International Air Transportation Fair Competitive Practices Act. And so there's a procedure there where airlines can file complaints with the Department of Transportation that foreign governments are subsidizing or otherwise engaging in unfair, discriminatory, or anti-competitive um, practices. And this process allows for a full on-the-record evaluation of all the evidence that would be submitted uh, under due process uh, and, other, and other requirements of, of administrative law. Now, U.S. airlines have used this law in the past and have often had uh, satisfactory settlements. And perhaps one of the first examples, Pan American used this, the IATFCPA, to challenge subsidies that the United Kingdom grants to BA, uh, British Airways. DOT had a comprehensive investigation, and uh, the United States and U.K. ultimately negotiated a settlement that involved the withdrawal of U.K. subsidies. Now, that's there and it exists. And if I were the administration, I'd, I'd suggest that would be kind of the first place to start. But so far, as long as this discussion's gone on, uh, none of the legacy carriers have actually filed that complaint under this law and regulation with the DOT. And, and I would think if the damages are there and, and, uh, and, and, there, and, and remedies need to be pursued, that would be the logical first place to start. And, and by most governmental standards, DOT would have to render decision. Is it 120 days? There's several steps in the process, but the, yes, there, that, that's a, the first 120 days would indeed be a key milestone in that process. Yeah, so that's awfully uh, quick for them, for the airlines, to get this resolved. It's an expedited process, as you suggest, and yeah. and uh, but you know the airlines actually will also have to produce some evidence of real damage and yeah. and uh, to address the remedies and it can't you know it's and that's what we haven't seen yeah exactly well any final thoughts be uh, before we wrap up well i think uh, we've chatted a lot about it over the last few minutes but open skies are 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 very important to our economy they're they're important to to you and i as passengers of of the airline industry we all benefit from that um, there are goals to increase tourism dramatically in the United States, and I think without open skies, and um, it would be hard to see how that would happen uh, over the next several years. And, and so there'd be a large part of the contribution to our economy that we could potentially forego and risk uh, were the uh, fabric of open skies begin to unravel 
and 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 more so if that unraveling you know was catalyzed by by pulling the thread on this agreement here with um, the Emirates and with Qatar. Excellent. Well, Bill, thank you very much for uh, your many intriguing insights today. Well, thank you, Kevin. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for this edition. For the entire team here at BTC Radio, thank you for tuning in.